In a dramatic climax last week, Saul treated the Lord like this giant vending machine in the sky making sacrifices to invoke the Lord's protection in battle when the Lord had specifically told him to wait until Samuel came so Samuel could make the sacrifices. And as we saw, this was a public act of disobedience and divination, which, you know, when you see that word divination, that is like treating the Lord like a giant vending machine. It's, it's manipulating the Lord. It's taking tools that are given to us as holy, that the sacrifices in, in Saul's case, um, ways of, of, fine, of communicating with the Lord, ways of um, coming into the Lord's presence. Divination is taking those in your own hands for your own purposes in order to wield that power yourself in the direction you want to wield it. So it's like a really big deal. Divination is as bad as idolatry to the Lord. All right. So, um, and on top of that, Saul is a leader. Saul whole us all. The Lord holds leaders to a much higher standard because they can lead a whole nation astray with just a word or an act, as we well know, right? So Samuel left after publicly excoriating Saul and declaring that the Lord was transferring the kingship to someone else. And to Samuel's dying day, Samuel and Saul never again saw each other. But that doesn't mean they weren't aware of each other's movements. Remember, Samuel has been judge over Israel his entire life, and it's only recently that Saul has been king, and even that was because Samuel anointed him. The events last week left Israel in limbo. Who is their leader, Samuel or Saul? You can bet that Saul is keeping close tabs on Samuel. If Samuel even makes a wiggle towards anointing a new king, Saul is poised to have him killed before he can do it. But Saul, once again, has failed to account for the Lord. The Lord is the kingmaker in Israel. Samuel, on the other hand, is brokenhearted. He grieves and grieves over Saul's utter failure as king until the Lord literally says, Samuel, get over it. Put on your big girl panties and go get your anointing oil and get yourself over to Bethlehem. It's time to anoint a new king. And Samuel says, but Lord, Saul will kill me before I get there. And the Lord says, well, don't tell anyone you're coming to anoint a king. Tell them you're coming to make a sacrifice to me. But be sure to invite Jesse and his family to the sacrifice. Of course, as Samuel approaches Bethlehem, the town elders, who presumably include Jesse, rush out to make sure he's not bringing the wrath of Saul down on them. They say, have you come in peace? And he says, yes, and then invites them all to his sacrifice. When Jesse and his seven sons arrive at the sacrifice, they come to greet Samuel. As each one comes to meet him, Samuel watches them closely. The eldest is a tall and handsome young man, and Samuel thinks, ah, yes, there is the Lord's anointed. But immediately the Lord says, Samuel, stop looking at appearances. 
the Lord God looks at the heart. Each of the seven sons come before Samuel and the Lord says, not this one, nor that one, none of these. Finally, Samuel says to Jesse, have you no more sons? And Jesse says, well, the youngest son is back home tending the flock. And Samuel says, call him at once, for we will not sit down to eat until he has arrived. Finally, the youngest son arrives, breathless and curious as to why he's been called. He's a redheaded lad. The Hebrew word is Edom, the same word used for Esau's redheadedness. He's a good-looking, handsome young man with beautiful eyes. His name is David, which means beloved. And the Lord says, Arise, Samuel, and anoint him, for this is the one. And so Samuel takes his horn of oil and anoints David. From the context of the story, it appears that this anointing is done in private with only David's family present. And they wisely keep it a secret to protect David from the retribution of Saul. Now remember that anointing in Israel is reserved for priests or kings. Only people from the tribe of Levi can be anointed priests, right? And David is of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. So he cannot be anointed priest. He can only be anointed king. Think of the layers of symbolism here. Remember Jacob's blessing of the tribe of Judah? It's in your study guide table of the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Saul, the first king of Israel, was from the tribe of Benjamin, and his kingship failed. But now the king is from the tribe of Judah the tribe whose kingship is to last forever. The significance of this moment is not lost on anyone. And the spirit of the Lord grips David from that day on. You may know already that David is a gifted musician and poet. More than half of the Psalms in the Bible are attributed to him personally. These Psalms are like reading David's personal journal. Like the books of the prophets, I want you to experience the Psalms in context rather than as a separate book. And there's not time to read them all together in class. Instead, I'll list a sample of them in the study guide each week for you as we come across the events they might relate to. You can read them as you reflect on the lesson. I've also put a link in the reference section to a complete index of the Psalms that I pulled together. Not all the Psalms will have scripture references with them because some Psalms are general and are not related to a particular event. But where a Psalm seems to be related to an event, and in some cases, David actually wrote in the Psalm what the event is that he's writing about. Um, I've given you this, you know, next to the number of the name of the Psalm, I've given you the scripture reference so you can find the story. The very first Psalm David wrote, at least the first one we have a copy of, is in today's study guide because it's not in your Bibles. So check the study guide out. There's an explanation there. When David is anointed, 
the spirit of the Lord simultaneously leaves Saul, and Saul begins to suffer from attacks of terror. Of course, back in those days, everything unexplainable or uncontrollable that happened to people is attributed to the gods, quote, right, the gods. Weather, sickness, defeat, or victory in battle, fertility and infertility, everything. So don't get all turned around because your Bible says Saul is afflicted by an evil spirit from God. That's a reflection of the cultural beliefs of the author and his time period and should not be taken as a theological statement about the Lord using evil spirits to do his work. You know better than that by now. Saul's attendants are frantic to find him some relief from his mental illness and the terror he's suffering. They suggest to Saul that he hire a heart player to soothe him during these bouts. Saul agrees this is worth a try. One of the attendants says, oh, he has a friend who's not only a skilled musician, but he's also brave and a warrior and a young man of understanding and wisdom, and, and he's handsome to boot. Saul hires his friend sight unseen. The young friend is none other than David himself. Oh my, you can already see that this is not going to end well. What will happen when Saul finds out David has already been secretly anointed king by Samuel? What will Jonathan, Saul's son, do when he finds out he's not to become king after his father? David, quite wisely, keeps his mouth shut and comes to live in Saul's court. Whenever Saul is suffering, David spends hours playing his lyre and his harp for him, and it gives Saul relief. Saul and David become close. They love each other as a father and son, and David becomes Saul's armor bearer. David goes back and forth from Saul's court to his home in Bethlehem to tend his father's flocks. As time passes, David's three oldest brothers are called to serve in Saul's army. David regularly couriers food and cheese from his father to his brothers. On this particular day, Saul and his army are camped in the Valley of Terebinth, which is also called the Valley of Elah, near Gath, gathering for yet another big battle with the Philistines. You'll recognize Gath as one of the five big Philistine cities. As David comes up over the hill with supplies for his brothers, he hears battle cries and sees the Israelites and the Philistines lining up against each other. Dropping his gear, David tears down to his brothers. Just as he reaches them, a giant emerges from the Philistine line and the Israelites fall back. One of the men tells David that this is Goliath and he comes out every day to taunt the army of Israelites to hand-to-hand -hand combat. King Saul has even offered his daughter's hand in marriage to any man who can defeat Goliath, but there's no man foolish enough to go up against him for it would be utter suicide. Now, contrary to popular belief and all the pictures you've ever seen, David is not a little kid. He's already been described as a warrior. He's probably in his late teens, a young man, not quite filled out, but definitely capable of fighting. And David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should insult the army of the living God? 
Well, David's elder brother, Eliab, hears David say this and yanks him back saying, what do you think you're doing? Get back home to the flocks where you belong, you impudent pipsqueak. And David says, what? It's only talk. And David turns his back on his brother and keeps up the talk. Soon enough, word gets back to Saul that David is trash-talking Goliath. So Saul has brought David brought to him. Saul says, David, just stop it. You can't go up against Goliath. You're still young and inexperienced, and Goliath is a seasoned warrior. And David says, I have been a shepherd all my life. I have literally rescued my sheep from the mouths of lions and bears. I'm not afraid of them, and I'm not afraid of Goliath. I can strike him down just as I've struck down the lions and the bears. He has insulted the army of the living God. And the same Lord who rescued me from the lions and the bears will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul says, go then and God be with you. Then Saul has David clothed in his own armor with his bronze helmet and his sword That gives you another sense that David is a grown man and able to fit into the armor. But David can barely move with all that weight on him. He's never worn armor before. Remember, only Saul and Jonathan really have full sets of armor. So David removes the armor. He takes only his shepherd's staff and his slingshot, the only weapons he knows. And he goes and finds five smooth stones from the creek and puts them in his pouch. Goliath continues to taunt the Israelites as David draws nearer and nearer. Finally, David stops and Goliath says, am I a dog that you would come at me with sticks? Come closer and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David replies, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come at you with the name of the Lord of hosts. God of the army you have insulted. This day, the Lord will give you into my hand and I will strike you down and take off your head and I will give your corpse and the corpse of the Philistines with you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And all the world will know that Israel has a God. And everyone here will know that it is not by sword nor spear that the Lord rescues. The battle belongs to the Lord, and he shall give you into our hands. And with that, David runs at Goliath. And as he runs, he draws a stone from his pouch and whirls it from his sling, and it strikes Goliath hard on the forehead. Goliath falls forward on his face, and David takes Goliath's own sword and kills him with it, and cuts off his head. At this, the Philistines flee, and the men of Israel and Judah rise up with a shout and chase the Philistines all the way back to their city of Ekron. So, this story is a standalone story in the book of Samuel. The author put it here in chapter 17, but it doesn't really fit with the rest of the chronology. We know it was written after Israel and Judah split into two kingdoms many years later because of the reference to the fighting men as being from both Israel and Judah. 
And in the epilogue to the story, it's clear that when this happens, when this, you know, this story of David and Goliath happens, Saul does not already know who David is. And in fact, asks who that is going out to fight Goliath. So it can't have happened after David came to Saul's court. It, it really doesn't seem to fit any of the story about David being a heart player in Saul's court. It's almost as if this is its own separate legend about David. And it appears that the author has taken this legend and stitched it together from various sources and placed it here as his best guess as to where it belongs in the narrative. And that's another hint that the author is working many hundreds of years later with conflicting stories from various sources. At any rate, the obvious point is that weapons are no defense against the Lord and our battles must belong to the Lord or we sally forth in vain. After this, David and Jonathan, Saul's son, who is probably the same age as David, become best friends. It says that Jonathan's very self becomes bound up with David's and they seal a pact between them because Jonathan loves David as he loves himself. And Jonathan takes his own cloak and armor and sword and belt and even his precious bow and puts them on David. Little does Jonathan know that David has already been anointed king secretly, destined to take Jonathan's own place in the royal succession. Many in the LGBTQ community understand the description of their love to mean that Jonathan and David had a committed, loving relationship, a true union of souls. That they love each other is obviously the case. That, that's very clear from the scripture. But there's no way to know if it was also a sexual relationship. That's entirely possible. But if so, David was bisexual. As we'll see, he's very clearly attracted to women later. But even if it was not sexual, the love between David and Jonathan is deep and abiding, and it lasts their entire lifetimes. Eventually, David becomes Saul's right-hand man. Whenever David is with Saul, Saul succeeds. So Saul sets David over a battalion, and David is extremely popular with the troops. But David's success comes to be his undoing. What tears it? is when Saul and David return from battle together and the women of the towns come out to celebrate their great victory singing, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Oops, not good. Saul is incensed saying, next thing you know, they'll be giving David the kingship. And Saul is suspicious of David from that day forward. The very next day, Saul is seized by an episode of his mental illness, and as usual, David is called to play for him. But Saul, in his mental torment, seizes his spear and tries to pin David to the wall twice. Saul's fear has eroded him from the inside. He has always felt like an imposter, but it's more than that now. His mental illness has grown into full-blown paranoia. 
It's actually not unusual at all for paranoia to develop in early adulthood and to increase over time, and the episodes do often come and go. When he returns to his right mind, Saul sends David and his battalion away. But wherever David goes, he not only leads his men personally into battle, he always succeeds because the Lord is with him. And Saul's fear of David grows as steadily while all of Israel's admiration of David grows. The severity of Saul's mental illness ebbs and flows as mental illnesses tend to do, but his paranoia never quite leaves him. Saul tells David he'll give him Merav, his eldest daughter, as wife, if David will fight in Saul's battles with the Philistines. Saul figures if he puts David on the front lines, the Philistines are bound to kill him eventually. But David demurs, saying, who am I to be son-in-law to the king? And so Merav is given to someone else in marriage. Meanwhile, Saul discovers that his other daughter, Michal, and David have fallen in love. So Saul hatches another plan to put David in danger. He offers McCall to him as a wife, but only if David will bring him a hundred Philistine foreskins as a bride price. Saul, of course, thinks the Philistines will certainly kill David before he can ever get a hundred foreskins. But this was a challenge David could not resist, and he sort of likes the idea of marrying McCall. So David goes out and kills 100 Philistines and gathers their foreskins for Saul. Saul sees that the Lord is with David and that his daughter McCall truly loves him, and so they are married. But Saul's paranoia continues to grow. And the more Saul hates him, the more the nation of Israel loves David, and David's fame reaches far and wide. Saul begins to plot David's assassination, and he tries to draw Jonathan into the plot. But of course, Jonathan loves David. So Jonathan warns David to go into hiding and pray hard. He tells David that he'll try to intercede with his father on David's behalf. And afterwards, he'll go out to the field where David will be hiding, and he'll tell him how it went with Saul. Jonathan then goes and pleads David's case to Saul, saying, please do not go after David. David's done nothing but good towards you. He even took his life into his own hands to fight the Philistines for you. If you put him to death, you'll have innocent blood on your hands. And Saul relents. Jonathan happily goes and tells David it's safe to come back. But the uneasy truce does not last long. David continues to have success on the battlefield against the Philistines, and Saul's paranoia returns. Again, David is called to play for Saul, and again, Saul tries to pin him to the wall with his spear. David narrowly escapes this time, and Saul, in his anger, sends assassins to watch David's house so they can capture him and put him to death. McCall, David's wife, warns him to flee, and she lets him down through the window. Then she fills the bed with their household idols and puts bit of goat hair at the head and then covers the shape with a sheet. When the men arrive, she tells them David is ill. So they leave and return to Saul with the news. I find it interesting that they have household idols. I wonder if they're hers. I wonder if this is a situation like we ran into with Jacob and Rachel. Anyway, when the assassins report back, Saul says, 
I don't care if he's deathly ill. Go drag him out of bed so I can put him to death. But of course, when they get to his house, nothing is in his bed but the idols and the goat hair. Saul is furious with his daughter, McCall, and says, why did you let him get away? And she tells him David threatened to kill her unless she helped him leave, which was, of course, not true at all. She turns out to be sort of a snake all the way throughout the stories. David, meanwhile, has fled to Samuel's house in Ramah. But Saul's spies track him down and run right back to tell Saul. So once again, Saul sends assassins. This time, as the assassins approach Ramah, they, send a, they see a band of prophets dancing and shouting in prophetic ecstasy with Samuel presiding over them. And the Holy Spirit falls on the assassins and they too start dancing and shouting to the Lord. So Saul sends more assassins and the Holy Spirit overcomes them too and they too fall into praising God. A third time, Saul sends assassins, and a third time this happens. Finally, Saul says, oh, good grief. If you want to get anything done, you have to do it yourself. And he himself goes to Ramah to kill David. As he reaches Ramah, the Holy Spirit falls on Saul in even greater measure, and he walks along speaking in ecstasy, what is called prophesying in the Hebrew Bible and is called speaking in tongues in the New Testament. Do you, do you remember that, um, uh, not proverb, a riddle? It, do you remember the riddle? This, this was like a riddle when the Holy Spirit fell on Saul at the beginning of his kingship when he was first anointed by Samuel. He started prophesying in ecstasy like this. And when the people of his hometown saw him, they said, what has happened to Saul, son of Kish? Is Saul one of the prophets? And the answer to the riddle was, who's your daddy? God, your daddy. Who is their father? Is Saul one of the prophets? So in our groups today, we're going to give some thought as to how mental illness might impact our gifts and our calling. Can and does the Lord call people to leadership who are struggling with mental illness? Hmm. Um, pardon? We didn't have enough time to talk yeah, about it. We haven't done it yet. <laughs> <laughs> you cut Shirley off mid-sentence. Oh. <laughs> I'm glad that you had a lot to talk about, you know, about about, um, you know, that it's not at all unusual for leaders in the history of the world to be mentally ill. And um, uh, I had a question for you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Saul, from what was happening, uh, you know, clearly he could have some paranoia and jealousy of, of David. Um, uh, why? I'm just curious why you uh, picked this out as a mental illness rather than kind of a, a, uh, a result of the human condition? Because it escalated to the point of murder and it seesaws back and forth between, you know, welcoming David and telling him everything's fine and recognizing that what he's doing is wrong. And then immediate, and then he'll like immediately flip into murder again. That, you, so, you know, so any men- flip flops. Yes, if any mental illness is nothing but part of the spectrum of broad humanity, all right? There is no dividing line. 
that that says, oh, this person's perfectly normal and this person's mentally ill. We're all on some kind of continuum and we, you know, waver back and forth. All right. Within that. And that's kind of, you're getting really to the point of why I wanted to talk about this. Um, And this seemed as good a place as any uh, to talk about mental illness, which is part of the human condition. And, um, and we need to think about how we relate to people who are mentally ill, be it ourselves or a loved one or a ruler or a coworker or whatever, um, because yeah. the question arises, are they called by the Lord? Can they be called by the Lord? Can they function in their calling from the Lord? And, and does God make mistakes by calling people who are mentally ill, by making people who are mentally ill? You know, so these were the questions I wanted you to, to think yeah. about. Um, so what did you, what were you talking about? what did you think? Well, you know, I, I, I threw your favorite, one of your famous phrases out there again, the Lord meets you where you're at. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm pretty sure the big guy doesn't make mistakes. (laughs) Uh, in fact, it's, you know, most people found it shocking when you use the R word repent. Yeah. Before last week, Mm. um, I, you know, I was saying, I always, and I said this last week, I always thought Samuel was ba- kind of a stand-in until David came along. Mm-hmm. You mean Saul? I mean Saul. Yeah. But I don't know. I Did did the Lord not give Saul the same opportunity to make choices that he gave David? Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. He, he did. He's no respect to uh, persons. You're right. Yeah, so I got an opportunity and he came up short multiple times. We came up with several lessons out of this. Um, one that we, um, Julie asked a question and the little light bulb went off over my head that um, why, the why in all this is to um, help us see our dependence on him. Mm-hmm that we can't do it on our own, whether it's physical or emotional or mental or, you know, whatever. Um, We are all flawed and we can't do it without depending on God. Mm -hmm. And some of us need that lesson a little more (laughs) beat up alongside the head with the two by four way than others. And the other thing that I, got out of it again when Julie Julius asks the best question. It's not Julie's fault. She she asked um, another question and all of a sudden the little light bulb went off and I went, God can use anyone. Yes. We all have faults. God can use you. God can use me. And that's kind of where I was going with the third question um, because about um, the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh that he complained about and he prayed about. He tried to pray the thorn away, as they say, <laughs> you know, and, and it didn't work for him any more than it works for anybody. Um, and and he um and he was clearly a gifted speaker. I mean, David was clearly extraordinarily gifted as a leader, right? He's 
he's handsome. He's got a personality. He easily connects with people. Men love him. Women adore him. He's a poet. He's a musician. He's a warrior. This guy can do everything, right? <laughs> and and Saul, on his part, has a little bit of a weird personality, and he's tall and handsome, and that's about all he's got going for him, right? But Saul was God's first pick for for king over Israel. And the Apostle Paul, with his thorn in the flesh that he felt hindered him, the Lord said, I'm not going to take that away. Right. What what is the Lord doing here? I think it's no different than like Moses. Moses had some kind of uh, vocalization problem. Maybe he stuttered. Um, Moses had some kind of problem communicating, but God still used him to lead. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And Moses was God's first pick. Why is God picking these flawed people with deficiencies? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're all deficient in some way. He doesn't have anybody that isn't that he could pick. I mean, I guess ultimately where they were not flawed is relying on God if they were to be successful. Mm-hmm. So God doesn't pick us because of our abilities. He picks us because of our willingness. Yeah, and our obedience. Yeah. I think I heard the word flawed, you know, that he's picking these flawed individuals. I'm thinking he's picking these extraordinary individuals. They have things that impede them in life, and yet they still persevere. I love that, Julia, and that's exactly um, that's exactly how mm-hmm. we need to be thinking of each other and of ourselves. Mm-hmm. That if we perceive these things as flaws that are nothing but the diversity God has built into the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. They're not flaws. I like that. Well, survival I, over struggles. That's what I'm calling it. Survival over struggles. I mean, they're they're kind of. Uh, I would I kind of call them. You know, the results of the human condition. You know, the after the fall. Is that is that a bad thing to to say? I think that, well, I tell you what, there's, you know, St. Augustine, uh, or St. Augustine is how you would really say his name, um, would agree with you, Ross. Um, But he didn't come up with that until 400 years after Christ. And I don't read anything in the Bible so far that we've done, or in anything Jesus ever said that indicates that God sees us as flawed and fallen. Quite the contrary. That's another one of those things that we've just been taught traditionally through our churches that isn't there. Yes. Yes. So if I hear you correctly, Gail, then you're saying that any of us in this room right here, if we were taken and picked as Saul was taken and picked, then at some point, our flawness would also pop out. 
Absolutely. you know, whatever that might look like. Yeah, that's what of I hear you course. saying. And often yeah. our greatest weaknesses are also our greatest strengths and mm-hmm. vice versa, right? You know, also though, being put out in front of people, being placed in a position of leadership, um, more people have the opportunity to see you, to view the fact that you are flawed. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just a person with a family and um, living your life and you go to work, you know, you have your coworkers and your boss and your family that can see that you are, you know, quirky or have whatever. But if you get put in a position of um, leadership in your town, say you, you know, become the mayor or governor or alderman or, you know, you're on the school board or whatever. Now you have more people looking at you. Mm-hmm. That is right. And at that point, you are immediately placed publicly at a crossroads and you have to make a choice. And Saul chose one way and David chose another. And Mm. that choice is, am I going to package myself up and present myself in such a way as to be not flawed? Am I going to create an image of myself so that people will follow me because I'm not flawed? Or am I going to let people see me as flawed and not perfect and deficient and weak or whatever word you want to throw at that? Am I, and to get back to Julia's point, am I willing, this is even deeper really, am I willing to be seen as different than the others. Different, or not different. Than it, others, different in a way that they would perceive as negative. Yeah. And that, that, the word that that applies to, the word that describes that path that David chose is the word humility. Mm-hmm. Right? You and, don't see that at all no but this is what we need to be reading and soaking ourselves in in the story of david and saul and moses is that the lord requires from all of us that we choose humility Mm -hmm. and that's exactly how the lord responded to the apostle paul when he was fretting over this when he came out in public, right, and got a public role, and all of a sudden people are attacking him left and right, and he's got these problems, God said, you know what, Paul, Paul my grace is sufficient. Yeah. My grace is sufficient for you. My, my power is perfected in your weakness. Mm-hmm. It's what God is saying is the more humble you will make yourself, the more powerfully I can move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I have a question. Uh-huh. If your thorn in the flesh is a mental illness and you have these, this choice to make to, and Julie and Pat and I kind of talked about this a little bit, but you have a choice to make to recognize that you have a problem and deal with it or 
deny that you have a problem. Mm -hmm. But if you have a mental illness, how do you recognize that you have a problem? I think that um, it depends on the mental illness, um, but it, it helps me to think of it as a physical illness, like I would a physical illness. Mm -hmm. um, that the way I know I'm physically ill is, be, is in part by seeing myself in community and seeing that other people can walk and I can't. Okay. Um, and, and, um, it is like Julia said, it's not that I'm deficient because I can't walk. It's that I'm different because I can't walk. And that means in many cases that I have a head, I have a head start on that humility, right? Um, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, gifted in seeing life from a different perspective than the run of the mill people would would see life and I'm going to go way out and on you know the extreme end here you've got the Ted Bundys of the world mm -hmm. the people who are so mentally disturbed that they don't even know they're mentally disturbed mm -hmm. in their mind their perfection they're you know they're okay. narcissists or whatever and they there's nothing wrong with me it's all of you how yeah. does that work in this? I mean, how do you, you know? Yeah. And that's where we're fortunate that we live. That's where we're fortunate that we live in community. We are designed to live in community and not alone. Um, and, and it is because community will come around us and bring us to help and keep us from hurting ourselves and other people when that's necessary, that's how we're supposed to work. And yet there's a piece of it. If you're, I guess I'm still kind of stuck on the St. Augustine, that bandwagon of all we've been taught, because essentially if God views us not by our flaws, then the fear that we've been living, that we fall short and need him, which we do, but it would be so much our world would be so much different because we wouldn't be so quick to judge or criticize or point out each other's flaws or expect people to be who they're not, but just are able to view them, like you said, in this part of the spectrum of humanity. There wouldn't be this need to put people and make them who we think they are because of the sphere that we're flawed. And I don't know, I, I, I guess I'm just stuck on the oh, this really stinks that I feel like I've been um, doomed my whole life. And, and I'm just starting to, to ask that question, wait a minute, if, if God doesn't see me flawed, then why do I keep constantly worrying, feeling the guilt, feeling the shame, caring about what other people say when I am who God like, I wish that I could see myself and I wish that I could see others, how God sees them if without the flaws, because I mean, I, I, it's a fascinating idea, but I don't know how realistic that can be because we're so conditioned to think we are flawed and it's our responsibility to point out flaws of others. Let me, let me say something to you here. 
let me let me respond a minute to that. And that is that God created us with our flaws. And that is part of his design that none of us should be without a thorn in the flesh. None of us should be without a weakness or many because we, his design is that we can only function well together with each other Mm -hmm. and with him. And therefore, God created these flaws in us as a way to invite us into the dance. With humility, yeah. With him and with each other. Fully and perfectly acceptable to him as we are with our weaknesses. With our flaws in our full humanity. There is no judgment or condemnation for us because God chooses not to condemn us. How could he condemn us for how he made us? I remember... You know, you remember the passage where uh, you have the blind beggar and them asking about what sins did his, did his yeah. parents? Oh, commit? this is when he was healing somebody. Yeah, uh-huh. I don't know. This brings that up to me. He goes, it, it wasn't because of any sins because, of course, they thought that, mm-hmm. that those afflictions were because of, of sins. But, uh, you know, basically, uh, for uh, if I remember right, for uh, the, the glory of God to be revealed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. And don't you find that over and over and over and over in all of our studies of the Hebrew Bible so far? Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle happens, including this one with David and Goliath. And always you find a statement in there that the Lord did the miracle so that everybody involved would know that Israel has a God who loves them. Mm -hmm. Dale, I was was listening to you speak and with what Erica was saying, and it reminds me of the passage, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, love yourself. Be gentle with yourself. Be kind to yourself. Because without starting with yourself, it makes it hard for you to extend that to others. Yes. And what if, I mean, just sit there and ponder. What if God gave you the very weaknesses and flaws that you're fretting about simply so you would come to him to talk about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Erica had reminded us too in our uh, small group that you know God's ways aren't our ways, which was uh, kind of pointing back to your continued theme, Pastor Gail, of humility. So I think even to it, it's a challenge to even answer the question: Can one with mental illness or physical illness or whatever flaw it may be, are they fulfilling? Are they able to fulfill their calling by the Lord? Uh, you because our 
are what we view as someone fulfilling their calling by the Lord, maybe not even on the same page. It's a completely different book than the one that God is <laughs> seeing them you know, with. And, uh, and they, they may be beautifully fulfilling their calling by the Lord and you know, us with our finite, uh, you know, Erica used the perspective like this perspective versus seeing the whole picture. Um, it, it again calls me to humility. Yeah. I mean, don't you think, do you, it, could you possibly think that the God who created all this diversity in the world, who created us in all of our diversity would give us a one size fits all calling? Oh, no. Oh, God. Yeah. It makes no yeah. sense. And so if, if, if I have a child who, who struggles with reading, I'm not going to guide that child into, you know, an uh, uh, Ivy League path. Why would I do that? It would crush them. God treats us like that. God, God has a, it says he's prepared the works for us beforehand. God has laid this out for us so that we can go from step to step, from task to task, from person to person, from call to call. Our calling is nothing more than to walk with God step by step. There is not some magical, you know, thing in the sky. You don't have to go to a seminar and figure out what your gift is in order for you to figure out what your calling is in life. That's not how it works. God is very organic. God is very present and God is about the now. Mm -hmm. So if you're worried, always put the word now at the end of the question. What is my calling in this moment? What is my calling now? What am I called to today? And the answer is to look to see where the Lord is today and go do that. And it has nothing to do with how talented you are or how perfect you are or how equipped you are. The Lord says it does, none of that matters. You don't need armor. You don't need to be equipped. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to make yourself good first. In fact, you're going to get a whole lot more done if you just like come along with me and let me do it and you just be there. What if your job is simply to walk beside someone else? What if that's all that any of us are called to do? What if that's all God wants? Is for us to be there to say, yay, God, when God does stuff mm-hmm. and wants us to be there to hold someone's hand so that they can feel God's presence. What if you're just to be the eyes? What if you're the person who is holding their faith for them in their moment? I've had a, I've had a, I've heard it called um, the ministry of presence before, where you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to come up with quick, catchy little answers. You don't have to come back and say, I know exactly how you feel. 
but just giving the time over to say, hey, let me just be here. I'll grieve with you. I'll have joy with you. I will clap with you. Uh, I'll ask questions with you. But I just want to be here as a connecting rod as you connect and, with the Lord. And I will accept you. Yeah, I, for who you are. It's the word namaste. I see the holy in you. Mm-hmm. And I affirm that in you. I know that you can't feel it right now, but I can see it. It's there. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. I, I want to, to voice something for, for my, myself and what I, I think others have been saying when it comes to imposter syndrome. Uh, you feel like a lot of times you feel like an imposter when it comes to loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Because you can't, <laughs> you have you have difficulty loving yourself, and and you probably need to heap more of that on your neighbor than you're even doing it to yourself. Uh, and and there's a lot of you know there's there's more conscious terms nowadays about self love, self care, and so forth, because. Uh, it's it's tough for a lot of people nowadays. Am I? No, you're absolutely I... right. And and what I would respond to that is to think of it like an outdoor shower, and to simply practice opening your imagination to the possibility that God is 100% pleased with you. 100% pleased with you. And step under that knowledge and let it pour down over your head like an outdoor Mm -hmm. shower. And stay under that shower as long as you can stand it. It'll be just seconds or minutes at first. And step back and take your breath. But make that a daily practice for at least a month. Just imagining what does it feel like if God 100% approves of you, sees you fully, knows every dark deed, every dark thought, every failing, every falling, and still approves of you 100%. That is who our God is. That is his expectation of us. That is his invitation to us, is to creep into his presence, knowing what we know about ourselves, and accept that he approves of us 100%. We are having to fight centuries 
of muscle memory in the Christian church, <laughs> right? Centuries of self-condemnation and poor theology about who God is. Jesus came and said, my mission, God sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To tell you the Lord loves you. And this is his year of just showering you with kindness. Mm -hmm. Right? Isaiah 61, you can go read it. Yep. That is Jesus' message. Period. The end. Jesus stopped in the middle of a sentence and put a period on that. When he inaugurated his ministry here on earth and anything you have been taught to the contrary is wrong. I don't care what scripture they quote at you because what matters is who God is. And if you've seen anything in these studies of the Hebrew Bible so far, Have you seen condemnation? Have you seen God wanting to condemn his people? No. No, I know that the Lord is death on sin. He's death on idolatry. He's death on rebellion. I mean... We've, we've read enough to know that he will, he will wipe out a nation if he could, if and when they choose to deliberately not follow the Lord. But to your point, Gail, you know, when you get to a place where your heart is humbly acting out in obedience and faith, that's a whole different perspective that the Lord takes on us. And I get that. And um, that's where, you know, all these years I've been serving the Lord, that's where I more and more want I, we were at a cohort last night when one of the questions that came up is why are you here? And so Andy and I said, we just, you know, we want to be transparent. We want to be around other believers that are mature that can speak into our lives. If there's something that's missing, uh, if there's a blind spot that we don't see between us as a couple, we want to, we want others to catch it, you know, because there's no reason not to. Uh, and I, and I honestly believe that that's where God wants all of us to be at some point is, you know, where can I be more transparent? Where can I be more humble? Where can I be more accessible to his spirit? As opposed to how, how far can I get away with it before I get caught? Or how, yeah. how much can I improve myself? And I'm not saying that we should not grow in the Lord, that we should not turn away from things that we are doing wrong. I'm just saying that will happen naturally as we walk yeah. with the Lord. And it happens in the Lord's time. I, another thing I was going to, I was thinking of when I was talking, uh, responding to Erica was, was how many times I have taken this central sin in my life that is the thorn in my flesh and put it front and center before God every night and said, I cannot overcome this. I cannot get past this. This keeps grabbing me around the neck. I you need to fix this, Lord. Fix this. Fix this. And the Lord does not fix it. 
Am I praying wrong? No. Mm. The issue is, it's not important to the Lord to fix it right now. Mm -hmm. God's got other things he's doing in my heart and in my life. So if the Lord is not fixing something and you've been begging him, like Apostle Paul was, right? Mm -hmm. Take that silence for the answer. Lay that thing down. Stop dragging that ball and chain around with you. Just lay it down. God can find it again when he's ready to fix it. Mm-hmm. And look for what, what else is the Lord inviting me to? This is all part of the yoke is easy and the burden is light. If you're getting it right, it will be a joy. We're like a half hour past time. I'm sorry. I've been long today. Hey, real quick, before you hang up, can you tell us why you wrote that last question? The, the fun one about why did he have five stones instead of oh! one? Sure. Sure. Does he anybody has a good know answer, the answer I, to that question? Come on, Shirley, jump up. Four brothers. Goliath had brothers. Yes. If you look in the, at the second page, there's a second page. Be sure to pick print the second page of the study guide, I give you the um, scripture references where each of those brothers were later killed. Right. And so the, so it is more than likely that the entire family had showed up at that battle. And that if, and that if Goliath went down, that his brothers would come as basically seconds, you know, Um, and that it is entirely likely that he picked up five stones because there were five giants there. Just in case. Just in case. (laughs) He's like a boy scout. He was being prepared. Exactly. But apparently they ran. (laughs) I just want to say this week, may we all be able to park our ball and chain at the shower. Yay. Yay. I like that, Rob. That's good. Good. Uh, That's good stuff. I love you guys very much. Happy Easter. Happy Happy Easter. Bye. 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 Bye.